0: Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. It is Friday, the 3rd of April, and this is the Way It Is official Bobby Galinsky podcast. I am, of course, Bobby Galinsky, and welcome to the show, episode two We Made It. And I'd like to thank everybody that tuned into episode one. And uh, I am quite proud to say, after a lot of trepidation, that there were enough downloads and absolute f- flurry of activity, that the podcast is already in the top one-third of new podcasts, Uh, and I'm serious as cancer about that. Really hard to believe, but um, you either love it or you're hate listening, and I don't care what it is. Anyway, as I said, it's the 3rd of April, and on this day for you historians, the 3rd of April in 1968 is when civil rights leader Martin Luther King delivered what turned out to be his final speech, telling a uh, rally of striking sanitation workers in picturesque Memphis, Tennessee, that he's been to the mountaintop, seen the promised land, and he might not get there with you, but he is going to go out and step on a balcony at the Lorraine Motel, which was absolutely a horrific career move, as we all know. So I can tell you right now that I'm not going out on any balconies today because I really want to get to episode three. So, On that note, sitting here in my uh, Qantas First Class Pajamas, which is the new uniform, I've just had a beautiful, beautiful Tonic Lab ginger shot. They're made in Elwood. There's no commercial consideration. These are just things that I like. I don't have any sponsors. The show is free. It's sponsor-free. That could change at any time. Um, That could be the Jew in me that comes out and wants sponsors one day. And uh, we're going to be talking about Jews in the news this week because there's a lot, and they've been some very bad behaving little kitty cats, and uh, I've got a beautiful cup of coffee from Super Random in Brighton, and the only two places I get coffee is Super Random in Brighton, on New Street, or the amazing Sam's Cafe Sue Heblado, my oldest friend in Australia, and the best coffee maker on the planet up in St. Kilda on Wellington Street. I've got my Claridge's pen, which is as close to Claridge's as we're going to get. Got some nice Prada sneakers on, feel like I'm traveling. And a couple of new books in front of me that were hand-delivered contactlessly from the amazing Cliff at the Grumpy Swimmer in Elwood, which is a bookstore that is thriving during this uh, pandemic, if you will, this um, covittingly Fittingly strange time. So, we've got all kinds of wonderful things to cover today. Bit excited, bit excited. We got some good feedback from the left handers that enjoyed the show last week, the people afflicted with left handedness. We'll be continuing that thread through the show and beyond. And we'll be talking about another affliction, which is old people. Now, obviously, the Wuhan virus is solving the old people problem by and large. But we're going to talk about when do we take their keys away? When do we take the keys from the old people, our parents, grandparents? Um, maybe some of you listeners are aged and thinking, when do you give up the keys, give up the freedom? So we'll be talking about that a bit. And also, um, wrapping up Curb Your Enthusiasm Season 10, which the last episode aired just a uh, Last night, or last week—I think it was last week—on FoxTEL, I just watched it last night. Larry David, the creator of Seinfeld, who created *Curb Your Enthusiasm*, but I think—I think I'll bring us up to date with um, a wonderful little touch on really where the world is today. If you're sitting around, or you just woke up, you've been in a coma, and somebody said, "Hey, you gotta listen to this podcast." Imagine if ten years ago you were approached by a time traveler, and he came up to you and said, "Hey, look." I don't have much time to explain, but all I can tell you is the year 2020 is going to be an absolute shit show. You know Donald Trump, the star of The Apprentice? Well, he's the president of the United States, and at the beginning of 2020, he gets into a Twitter beef with Iran that some people think is almost going to start World War III. Australia catches on fire and almost disintegrates, and a woman tries to save it by selling nude pictures. Kobe Bryant passes away in a helicopter crash. Half the world is devastated, the other half just makes up messed up memes about his you know, messing around. A little time passes, and just when the world finally starts recovering from the loss of Kobe, some dude in China eats a nasty raw bat and starts a global pandemic that specifically kills maumas and pawpaws. Everyone loses their mind. 40% of the population thinks it's the end of the world. Another 40% thinks it's fake. And of course, 20% blames the whole thing on cell phone towers and Tom Hanks's kids. The one thing everyone seems to agree on, is that the only way to survive is by hoarding toilet paper. Grocery stores are ransacked. Sharman Ultrasoft essentially replaces the dollar as the U.S. official currency. And eventually, as hysteria grows, world governments are forced to shut the entire planet down and lock everyone into their houses. And that's just the first three months. Seemingly... The only person that can keep the people from completely flipping out and starting a huge riot is a gun-toting, homosexual Oklahoma man with a massive meth addiction and 227 big-ass pet tigers. That is pretty much the state of the world today. And a hap tip to Swim Charlie Swim, who's a Twitter friend, never met him, but you should follow him, Swim Charlie Swim, and he's got a movie coming out later this year called Best Sellers, which I'm looking forward to. Very clever boy. You should definitely follow him on Twitter. So, how have you all been? I definitely don't expect you to answer that. It's a rhetorical question, but it does sound nice. How have you been? How are you? What's happening? How you going, mate? How's everybody going? It's nice to greet people that way. And of course, it's nice to be nice. Because if you're nice, people will listen to you. If you absolutely rant all the time, people will just write you off. So I get to rant because I'm usually nice. And I will rant from time to time, people know. In fact, I did have a lot of comments going, Jesus, Bobby, you really were a bit nice on that first podcast. You didn't unload at all or rant on anybody like, you know, Chrissy Teigen or Alyssa Milano or other people that we, you know, know they would really like to get into. Well, I just didn't want to go that direction in the first several podcasts. I really want to lure everybody in. It's family friendly, the occasional F-bomb, the occasional this or that. And then everybody really gets lulled into that comfortable living room, sense that everything's safe, and then just pounce on them and just suck the lifeblood out of them with some wild comment. Put them at ease and then blindside them, just like an episode of Survivor. A couple things to remind you, there are only two genders and Trump is your president. Now, some of the books that I've been reading and I will take a look at today. I do want to mention one amazing book that um, came, did not come from my good friend Cliff, but came from the evil Jeff Bezos at Amazon, which occasionally forced to order things from him. I don't like Jeff Bezos because he owns the Washington Post, which is absolutely a left-wing rag, zero real news, all fake news, absolutely horrific. But he did create Amazon I do love Amazon. So once again, play the man, not the ball. Got to respect him for what's good. Is a book called On Record, 1978. It was written by G. Brown, the number one preeminent Colorado rock-lit critic and probably one of the most notable rock-lit critics in the United States, who I've known since 1971 when I met him in Boulder. And uh, it is one of a trilogy of books that is um, on the way. It's the first one about the year 1978 and all the bands that made up that year. Now, if you were born after that, this might not have as much meaning to you as if you lived through that time. But it's an astonishing book, an amazing coffee table book. And on the last page is uh, a little bit about the New World mutants, which were, without a doubt, possibly one of the greatest bands in the history of God. Uh, your podcaster here was lead guitarist in that band, so uh, there's a little bit of transparency and disclosure there, but uh, pick up that book or you can take a look at the uh, shot on my Facebook and see how to order it. And anyway, anyway, no commercial consideration there, just passing out all the news that's fit to print. Um, you could take the book and uh, try and get a try and get a, a reservation at Dorsia and enjoy it, if you know what I'm talking about. Some of the things also that I've uh, been really thinking about this week is everything that I'm missing. I was talking about my Claridge's pen and my Prada sneakers not being able to go out to restaurants and things like that, but it's great to look through photos and and go on Facebook and Instagram and everything and and look at old photos and Posts and stuff, and remember the wonderful things that we've taken for granted. I love to travel, absolutely love to travel, and I'm a hotel snob. I love Claridges in London. I love the Firmdale Group in London and New York, like the Crosby Street Hotel and the Woodby. My wife and I absolutely adore those Le Bristol in Paris, um, incomparable. The Beverly Hills Hotel, the Pink Palace, the Polo Lounge, Room Three O Three. What could be better in Los Angeles? And restaurants such as, you know, the Brasserie of Light inside Selfridges in London, all, all these places that, that, that are closed. Uh, Balthazar on Spring Street in New York. Um, it's just, you know, right here at home in, in Melbourne. The uh, Donovans and the Stoke House and locally the Sons of Mary and the Elwood Bathers and all these places. Some of you may know these, some of you who've never been there, Australia wouldn't have a clue. Bistro Thierry in Malvern. I can just taste the escargot right now. Wish I had some. But you have your own Nate and Al's in Beverly Hills closed this morning. Nate and fucking Al's. The Hollywood Breakfast Amaze Balls Deli on North Cannon Drive that I, I can't believe is closed. I hope it, I hope it reopens when this is all over. Those are the losses. That's it's it's, it's like a death in the family. It's absolutely like, like a death in the family, maybe even more so, because um, those are places that you could eat, and um, it's hard to eat people when there's a death in a family. Who wants to eat a dead person? But um, who does want to eat a dead person? Well, actually, there's a few, um, and they were from Wisconsin and Chicago, come to think of it. But um, That's kind of a Midwestern thing. The only person I know in Wisconsin is my good friend, Jim Morgenstern, who's my lefty friend from high school. You've got to have a lefty friend every now and then. We're able to have, you know, conversations on social media that um, I can understand his rantings and musings and complete delusional behavior. But we can still be friends. Absolutely still be friends. Uh, At least I think so we'll find out we'll find out in in the future. Uh the the film industry has been devastated also absolutely annihilated. Some of my favorite shows have been put back 6 months or a year succession. Absolutely love succession. Succession was like my family business but on steroids times a thousand and I didn't have a sister although I wish I had a sister. And I wish we'd had a helicopter too. We didn't have a helicopter. In Sioux City, where I grew up, we had these succession Jewish cabal, cabals. We had um, like the Kalens with the heating and cooling, the Rosenthal's with the uh, fruit and vegetables. Um, you had families that controlled a lot of the things in Sioux City, and you were either in the circle patronizing them, or you were outside the circle. I had a good friend in high school, my uh, friend Nancy Levine. Nancy's late father, David, uh, was a prominent jeweler in town, was a jeweler. And then there was the Greenbergs that were jewelers. But then there was the Gundersons that were jewelers, too, that were very groovy. But they were goys. They weren't Jewish. So if you were Jewish and you were buying from a jeweler and you're getting married or, you know, bar mitzvah or a special occasion or anything like that, you had to be very careful on who the shop from. And there was a huge division on who shops from who and sometimes you spread it around but sometimes you just kind of said i gotta go with with this guy and uh, you heard about it at a cocktail party you know about six months later nice ring you didn't get that from our family did you yeah and what kind of watch is that oh it's piaget we don't sell piaget we have seiko why didn't you come to us Uh, well um not that but that's the beauty of living in a small town And that's just kind of the way it was there in the 50s and 60s. And it seemed normal to me there. We only had a few black families in town. We uh, had no gay families that I knew of. We had a teacher at Central that I think was gay, not sure. But it was a a very, very seamless, kind, friendly, weird place. Last week, Woody Allen and uh, the problems with his new book and how he had to change publishers. We have Harvey Weinstein, who, of course, has been in the news. Roman Polanski, who couldn't even accept his award At at Cannes, um, you know, one of the greatest directors of all time. But, but he did allegedly cross the line about 60 years ago um, with a young girl in a hot tub, and her mom won't even um, call the shots on anymore. But uh, he's been tarnished for history. I had a great deal of experience with um, Quaaludes in hot tubs and um, young girls in the 70s, generally, obviously, of my own age, of course. And I was very successful at giving them the Quaaludes and the Coke and the ride around in my Porsche, but could never get them into a hot tub. I couldn't even get them into my own apartment. So absolutely, epically, epically feel. And believe me, I tried hard. I tried hard. Very, very hard. Absolutely failed. So apparently I wasn't reading the instructions on the uh, the bottles or the baggies, right? Well, I've got a Porsche now, but I'm married. So, and I don't have a hot tub. Um, I've tried in vain to uh, get my wife to uh, agree to put a hot tub um, out in the courtyard in the apartment, but she really doesn't want to borrow it. Not interested in the hot tubs. And um, so I've had to retire on that uh, on that effort. So, all I can say is no hot tub, and she rejected my airdrops. Anyway, I should probably start making a list. Could be warning signs, but um, that's okay. I was talking last week about, and earlier uh, today, about growing up in Sioux City, and also some of my biggest memories. And the reason I share this is it um, all kind of comes full circle on what I'm doing today and uh, why certain things just absolutely drive me mental. Or Why they just don't bother me at all when other people absolutely are are triggered by them It was pretty much every weekend. I used to go to the uptown cinema uh, Which was about five minutes from our house. My mom would go up. It was it was a double cinema It was like 25 or 50 cents to get in and popcorn was like a dime That's 10 cents if you're not from the states and uh, a coke This was way before diet coke or tab or anything like that was 10 cents so um, my dad would often be at the plant, at the office, um, or golfing or whatever like that, just before my mom took up golf. And so she would see uh, some adult, well, not adult movie like, you know, you porn adult movie, but a uh, uh, an adult drama or something like that, like a Spencer Tracy film or Gary Cooper or whatever like that. And then I would see the double horror feature Uh, at the other screen. Or I just go up with with my friends and and, and bicycle home through the Triangle and back down Valley Drive. It was a very, very um, pleasurable experience, the halcyon days of my youth. And watching movies absolutely grew up. uh, Favorite movie of all time, To Kill a Mockingbird. I wanted to be Gregory Peck. I wanted to be Atticus Finch. He wore nice suits, he wasn't uh, a bit too much of a wanker. He was a, the best father ever. He was raising two kids, which really seemed to be a pain. Um, but he handled it, and he would shoot rabbit dogs and be a rescuer, and he had a cool maid and all kinds of things like that. Calpurnia, who was like his good friend. So it, it seemed to be just, you know, he was an honest, upstanding, humanist, amazing guy. And... Um, I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be Gregory Peck, which over the years, uh, I probably got further and further away from Gregory Peck as you could, which was a bit depressing, but I wanted to have some of those values. In essence, I really wanted to be Atticus Finch. And I love the book, of course, and the screen, screenplay adaptation by Horton Foote is truly one of the greatest, if not the greatest, screenplay adaptation of all time. Uh, so that that's really what drove me and, and drove me to get into writing and uh, the entertainment industry. And uh, I was trained when I went out to Los Angeles by John Truby uh, as a writing coach, who was hands down... The best writing coach ever. Um, forget anybody else. I'm not going to slag off anybody else and you know get a lawsuit or something like that. But uh, John Truby is the best. If you're thinking of getting into the industry, if you're a writer, if you haven't haven't looked at John Truby's stuff, you're you're never going to be the writer that you think you could be. Just um, Google him, take his course on, online, whatever. And I was lucky in 19, I think it was 1993 or 92, to be put with. Uh, his black belt program, his first black belt program for individual writing coaching, he he thought I had promise. Um, and he was right, of course, in a non self deprecating, self promoting way there. Sorry, I do try and be humble, but occasionally I just, that, that bubble of confidence bursts out. Um, it was like I was scared shitless when I did this podcast last week because I'm usually, I love being in front of people. I love the uh, feedback of a crowd, whether it's, you know, eight people and really, you know, messing with them or 10,000 people or whatever, but s- spitting into the microphone, I was thinking who's really going to listen to this? Um, I this just, you know, waddling on and I go, I hate my fucking voice. And uh, uh, people go, oh, the only person I hate your voice is you. Your voice is fine. Okay. Um, so anyway, John Truby started this black belt writer's course for super intensive screenwriting. And no, it's not something you just learned. On your own, I suppose you can, but uh, you know, whether 10, 20, 30, 40 years, still learning something every day. And he put me with a fellow named Larry Heath, Lawrence Heath, who was an Academy Award nominated uh, screenwriter, uh, twice Emmy nominated uh, writer for the murder She Wrote, uh, Agatha Christie series. Amazing guy. If, if you ever saw a curmudgeon, In Wikipedia, this guy was a curmudgeon He was short and Jewish and kind of old and crusty. And I'd go to his apartment um, in West Hollywood off Burton Way, Uh, a nice little apartment. But for somebody that was so successful, it seemed to be still a bit of a reserved apartment, really wasn't sure what was going on there. It wasn't a really happy apartment. And I would spend a few hours with him every week and he would just be so exacting and so crushing on some things, but so inspirational on others. And it was the most amazing, amazing, amazing several months in my life. And it really turned me from what I thought was a good writer, or at least I thought I was a good writer, uh, into uh, a solid screenwriter. And really, my career took off after that. But what I found out later on which was the most amazing thing of all when I was trying to contact him some years ago after a project and say, Hey, Larry, if it wasn't for you, this wouldn't have happened as I found he was dead. And then I uh, contacted John Truby and John said, yeah, Larry's passed away and I go, Oh wow. Okay. Anyway. So I Googled and see, you know, when he died and everything like that. And lo and behold, as J.B. Smooth would say, lo and behold, you got to say lo and behold before something really heavy happens so that people understand the gravity of it. Lo and behold, Larry Heath wasn't really Larry Heath. Larry Heath grew up with a different name in New York City, and his real name was Larry Heidelman. And uh, in 1962, after a huge argument with his his then wife, he stabbed her about 20 times and killed her. He also attempted suicide and was declared mentally unfit and spent a couple years in a mental hospital in California until he was released. In 1964, he was declared recovered, and then he changed his name Legally, Larry Heath after that. Um, He created Mission Impossible, uh, wrote and produced the TV series, A Murder, She Wrote. He was involved in Dynasty. Um, Heaps of projects. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So I spent, I went to this guy's apartment every Sunday for months and months to months and didn't know that I was sitting there with um, a murderer who had changed his name, which is extremely cool because the guy kind of looked like Mel Brooks and so talented. So generous, so tough, what a curmudgeon, but um, I can truly say that my writing career was um, fostered by a murderer, which I'm proud to say. So I guess when Larry would say to me, hey, you better do this right, you better do this right, or I swear I will kill you, he probably meant it. In 2007, he, he hung himself, um, which is sad. Uh, never, Never really got to know Larry quite as personally As I'd like, Uh, but the details of his apartment now seem to make a little bit of sense to me as they all come flooding back. the The point of this story is, um, you never know who your friends or teachers are until you read their obituary. Speaking of writing, our first guest on the show next week is going to be uh, a young lady named Kim Co. She's a writer, a fantastic new writer. She's an amazing actress and has an astonishing story that. Um, We're going to talk about, it's not just Kimco here in Australia, but she has transmogrified into an amazing actress um, and a very, very good writer. Her first novel, July 17, debuts from Brolga Press in about a month, and it's a story, the eponymous story, of Malaysia flight J-17, which was shot out of the sky over the Ukraine on July 17th. Uh, 2014, killing everyone on board. One of the people killed on board was a good friend of Dr. Kim's. In fact, she had been invited by her late friend to join her on the flight uh, on a holiday, and she was ostensibly planning to when she backed out. Um, not at the last second, but um, pretty late in the game. Uh, a decision which obviously saved her life. A decision which obviously cost the life of her friend. the The book is not a uh, airline disaster. A uh, book, nor will the film be an airline disaster movie, but really a book about making huge life decisions based on inciting innocent um, incidents, such as uh, losing a friend in an airline disaster, which is something that um, you know nobody could even think about. So we're, we're excited to have her on. We're going to have several guests on over the next couple months. A couple of well-known uh, directors, painters. Uh, Authors, People generally in the arts are people that are are very, very groovy just for about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of have them yammer on about something that's important to them that I really like and um, also give you a breath from the dulcet tones of my voice for just a few minutes. I'm not going to be having any political guests on, though. Uh, Most of you know that uh, I'm a bit of a centrist to the right, And I did vote for President Donald Trump, and I will be voting for him again. And uh, I'm very open to left-wing arguments. And I'm actually open to Democrats, but I am not open to absolutely demented, um, deranged, completely psychotic, left-wing, liberal mess. And I I just... uh, we're just not going to go ramming and ramming and ramming on that. There's so many great political shows that do that. And we'll throw a few things out there um, from time to time and um, explain them in the show notes for millennials that might need a little bit, of, little bit of help with that. But there's just enough going on in the world right now. We will attack people from time to time, though, in various industries and bad decisions and things like that. Things that do concern me, uh, just the other day, is every store around here suddenly stopped taking cash and you can only you know use your little tap card or your Apple Watch or something like that. Now, I actually like to use cash for two reasons. One, uh, it makes it easy when you're accounting. You don't have to go, Jesus, what were those 712 little charges on my card that I don't remember? And, and they're all from bottle shops or liquor stores, how weird, but uh, no, it just makes it easier to keep track. And plus, my wife, who handles all the books, likes cash over tapping and things like that because she just thinks uh, that I have no control over what I would spend if I was unleashed with cards. And she's right. She knows me very, very well. So I'm given $11 a week, and I've got to make it last, which is really only about $6 a week US right now with the exchange rate. So um, if you think you're doing it tough, spend a day with me. Um, But lo and behold, Lo and behold, everything has gone cashless. Now, it is more convenient in some ways, and it is probably more sanitary. Really, money is, you know, carries God knows what, what germs on it, especially, you know, if you're passing a $50 bill that um, has been up in somebody's nose at a nightclub, you know, two weeks before, especially if that 50 belonged to Hunter Biden, so you would have known probably about an eight ball, and God knows what else would have been going up that Particular $50 note, but we'll leave that at that point. But be that as it may, what does concern me is that our liberties, our our freedoms have absolutely been eviscerated the last few weeks because of this Wuhan virus. Now, that's probably pretty prudent and really good with what's going on right now. Um, just like right after 9 11, right after the U.S. Um, was attacked by our Mideast friends, the Patriot Act came in, and you know, got to put all these immediate measures in place. But what the Patriot Act spawned was um, the FISA Act and all the abuses that came from there. And I won't even get into that on this show, or maybe even a future show, about how that's you know, led to all this Ukraine and Russians and, oh, fix the fixed U.S. election. And, and really the entire U.S., all it's been is trying to impeach Ah, uh, the president—the la- last four years—doing the the Democrats has done absolutely nothing except d- destroy the country, um, in their method of trying to destroy the president. So now you kind of know where I'm le- leaning on that. Uh, so it's these these things like one of the um, states in the U.S. just uh, enacted an act where if you're not practicing your social isolation, you can get up to a $10,000 fine and 90 days in jail. And a very similar set of penalties, both uh, fiscal and uh, jail time, were just enacted in New South Wales, where where Sydney is located. Now, in this current state of what's going on, yeah, I can see putting the scare in. But the problem is, is when the virus is handled and everything kind of goes back to normal which I think will be by the 1st of July in my estimate and hope, which is also my birthday, reminding you once again, for those of you that can still shop online, can still shop online for contactless delivery, is that I fear the governments in the UK and the US and here in Australia, which are doing amazing things to get money to people who need money as soon as possible. Your average mom and dad and business owner, that a lot of these laws are going to be the opportunity for governments to really seize on and extend and even expand. And a lot of our civil liberties are going to go away. I can even see cash being banned as currency in a very short period of time. And the problem is with that is that when there's no cash and everything is digital, really, do you have any money? If the government nationalized banks could you even get your money out, which really isn't in the bank right now. If you want to get it anyway, it's somebody else's money um, in a in a digital pool. And no, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I have seen historically over the years what happens when the government concedes on an emergency and then doesn't want to relax things. So just being aware, it's like in the, in the U.S., you know, there's been a surge in gun purchases and ammunition purchases. And people like Bill Maher said, oh, what are they going to do? Shoot the virus. No, Bill, you moron. They're not going to shoot the virus. What they're going to do is they're going to shoot people that do home invasions to come in and take things from the haves, because there's going to be a lot of have-nots. So um, again, how did this segue into a Second Amendment show? Because it just does. But um, and Jim in Wisconsin will be jumping up and down right now and just tweeting, tweeting away, going crazy. I can I can tell right now. Jim, slow down. Slow down. But that's why I'm not going to be having any political guests on. If you want to hear a great, great conservative political show, listen to Dan Boncino. He's amazing. And another thing about um, this money that the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia, uh, and we have a great... Prime Minister here, in and Scott Morrison, and I'm a big supporter of Boris Johnson in the UK. Uh, yes, that's pretty synchronous, my beliefs, is that, you know, it's the taxpayers paying for all this. It's getting money into you, the workers, moms and dads, and things like that. But never underestimate the power of free. Um, a lot of people that are day-to-day workers going, you know, I need my money, I need my money, don't give any money to the greedy corporations. Don't give money to the greedy corporations or the businesses. Why is it that people, what is it with you people? Why is it that people don't realize that whether you get a thousand dollar check or a $20,000 check or, or whatever, when you've used it for petrol or gas or food and, and rent and housing and you know toilet paper and God knows whatever, when it runs out, you still need a fucking job. If the companies that employ you don't get support then the world, the world stops. The tail can't wag the dog. Without companies, big companies and small companies, there will be no commerce. There will be no, no jobs. These are people that have risked everything and employ. It all starts. It all starts with the entrepreneur. There's, there's nothing that's free. And I know millennials love free. Oh, I want free school. I want free housing. Uh, I don't want to pay a housing loan. I want to defer my rent for 162 months, whatever. And I am picking on that that generation um, because I can and should. But that needs to be adjusted. We are all in this together in that way so that corporations as well as bartenders are all equal here in, in needing help. It is an unbroken circle and needs to stay unbroken. You can't just fix a little piece of the pie. Anyway, enough on that. I said I was going to review Curb Your Enthusiasm season 10. And um, if you're not familiar with Larry David, he was the creator of Seinfeld. He was really the genius behind Seinfeld. Not that Seinfeld wasn't a genius, but um, it comes down to the creator. And Curb Your Enthusiasm is kind of really an X-rated Seinfeld. In fact, Julia Louis-Dreyfus So I said, you know, I couldn't say fuck on Seinfeld, and it always depressed her. Um, well, everyone can on Curb Your Enthusiasm. If you're not familiar with it, you, you do need to start from episode one, season one, and really get it. And it's just Larry David and his musings walking around. This the, What has bothered me with season seven, eight, and nine, which have been parsed out over really several years, it's not, you know, every six months or every year, things like that, is that not only was he always an unlikable guy, but with a heart who was observational in his comedy, but really season seven through nine, he became really unlikable. It was almost impossible to love him. And with season 10, he's kind of come full circle uh, the timing couldn't be better because the country, the U.S., is, you know, so absolutely divided politically, and it's really how people make all their decisions, whether where they eat, um, you know, who they like, who they don't like. It's, you know, are, you know, did you like Hillary or did you vote for um, President Donald Trump? Well, um, strangely enough, with all this virus and everything, um, Hillary Clinton was just tested and uh, tested negative for president, which is good. Anyway... Anyway, just by coincidence, you have MAGA hats in the episodes. You have hand sanitizer. And this was all shot you know, way before there was this um, Wuhan virus. But Larry basically is upset. Uh, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, as of course, any review of a TV show or a movie is going to have a spoiler, you idiot. But uh, he opens up a Spite store. He's upset with Mocha Joe's coffee shop, everything is bad, and he opens up a Spite store. So really, all the episodes in season 10 are his adventures and open up this Spite store, which is only just to to, to crush the competition and other people that get involved in watching him and helping them, stuff like that. John Hamm from Mad Men, um, Mila Kunis, Ted Danson, um, Richard Lewis. The, the list is endless. Uh, Chaz, Chaz uh, Bono, um, formerly Chastity Bono, shares... Cher's son, uh, who is absolutely epic. But the piece de resistance is the Sean Penn scene. And Sean Penn does the most amazing, critical, great work that he did since he left Madonna. And it's absolutely a must-watch. This is one of my favorite shows of all time, and it's a hard watch. You can watch this and be uncomfortable, even on your own. But the best actor in the whole series this year is J.B. Smooth, who plays Leon. And just absolutely amazing. I implore you to watch this. And it's good to binge at home because on Facebook, as I posted, I've lost 25 kilos, 50 pounds. And I'm a svelte 180 pounds, um, about 83 kilos, um, which is what I weighed when I was six years old in Sioux City. But uh, I do have some injuries now as a result of this. I took up skipping rope and bought a skip rope. And I'm a bit knock-kneed. I've been banging my knees, and my knees are killing me. So it's a uh, skipping rope-related injury that I'm nursing, which makes me feel old. And speaking of old, I'm not old enough that you're going to take my car from me. No one takes my car from me. But I do know a lot of people that need to have their keys taken from them. And I really want to touch on when do you take the keys from the oldies? When do you just grab them out and go, you're grounded! You're in our world now, Grandma. Now, as I shared, there's a great article from a Boston writer, Robert Weissman. I uh, love to read The Globe, and this is what led me to this story. Love, love a lot of their uh, human interest stories. And really, as the baby boomer generation has grown up, their seniors are growing exponentially. They're living longer. They're just not dying. And their cognitive skills go down, the reflexes go down, vision goes way down. And now with the you know, like brighter lights on headlights and, you know, big LEDs on traffic lights, they they find it increasingly harder to see, especially at night. But yet the amount of access, oh fuck, it's the phone right in the middle of my podcast. Board is going to leave this in because of the epic possibility of failure. failure that can happen at any time, like leaving your phone on while you're doing the podcast. But I must admit the phone was on. Um, because uh, the love of my life had been ill and was at the hospital getting some tests. So um, even though she rejects my podcast, won't let me have a spa, I care about her dearly more than anything. And next week, I'll actually be talking about how I met her because I actually set myself on fire to meet my wife. And I don't know anybody out there that can top that story. But getting back to old people, once, once again, in driving, it's, right now, older Americans make up nearly a fifth of the nation's drivers, and it isn't just family raising concerns. Uh, a pretty loose network of auto insurers and medical professionals also is trumpeting safety behind the wheel. And with more than 40 million seniors in the U.S. with active licenses, uh, the decision to stop driving remains intensely personal. I think it's a conversation that just about everyone dreads. My my dad was 90 when he stopped driving, and uh, he kind of went into um, a bit of a hospice, palliative care, kind of place the last uh, year or so of his life. So it just kind of happened. It didn't have to have that conversation, but I would go down to visit him in Florida, and (laughs) he was a bad driver. Um, But you couldn't tell him that. You couldn't tell him anything, actually. Uh, So taking his keys would be, you know, like, um, you know, just verboten, not happening. Um, Easier to put your hand into a blender than have that conversation. But then my mom, who's a couple years, his junior, who passed away at 92, she was driving up till the day she died. She actually died in in her car. She went to Publix which is a grocery store in uh, South Florida, and was like uh, a 1,000 degrees out uh, in the summer. And uh, she came out with her groceries. She was very self-sufficient, 92 years old, Muriel. People knew know that she was just indomitable and, you know, a legend. And put the groceries in the car and got in and and had a massive stroke, which is fantastic for the world because if she'd had the stroke in the car on Tamiami Trail while she was driving, she... Could have killed, you know, a bunch of people. Who knows? So, God bless, she went quick. But we tried to have that conversation. My brother and I tried to have that conversation with her because she just, she was a capable driver, but she was an unsafe driver. You could just tell it was an accident waiting to happen. And although seniors have actually fewer accidents per hundred than younger drivers, which really surprised me, the accidents they have are usually life-ending or or quite catastrophic. But the thing is, one of the things that is so intrinsically bizarre about this is that our parents generally taught us how to drive. My dad taught me how to drive in a big, big truck from the foundry. So to go and then ask the person that gave you the keys, the person that taught you how to drive, and go to him or her and say that you're going to take their freedom away that you're going to take their keys away and imprison them to a certain extent um, is is just huge. It's, uh, it's a conversation that people hate to have. And most people my age, if you haven't lost, I'm 66 and a half, almost, a little more. But most people my age, their parents, if they're still alive, it's, it's, it's time to take the keys if you haven't already. They're in their 80s and 90s and really should not be on the road. They may be perfect in any other way, but I can't think of any other conversation most most people w- would dread and re- and really have to address because it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And I it's something that I think about every day when I'm driving down the street and see an old man or an old lady, and I go, Oh, they look nice. They look kind of like my parents did. Get off the road! God! Because they just can't drive, so on that note, I think uh, I need to get off the road of this podcast, which uh, is going a little bit long we'll We'll get into a groove on on length on this and time to time got a lot of things to do I've got to read my mystic Medusa column for today and the rest of the week um, Astrologer to the stars so I'll know exactly what's going to be happening to me. Take advice wherever you can get it, folks. There's always good information. And um, on that note, we'll uh, see you next week. And you know we'll see you because every time you download this, it opens up your camera on your device, and I see exactly what you did there. None of you have any secrets from me. I know it all. And uh, don't read any newspapers from the mainstream media. Ignore all the Chinese government propaganda. No, the U.S. did not bring the Wuhan virus there. Don't believe any of that crap. Um, But do take care. Stay well. Try and observe some social distancing rules as much as you can. And always remember, it is nice to be important. But it is more important to be nice. See you next week.